This is the CIIS Public Programs Podcast, featuring talks and conversations recorded live by the Public Programs Department of California Institute of Integral Studies, a nonprofit university in San Francisco. To find out more about CIIS and public programs like this one, visit our website, ciis.edu, and connect with us on social media at CIIS Pub Programs. Good evening. Thank you for being here. Good evening, Dr. Metz. Good evening, Dr. Allison. Great to be here with you. And thank you, CIIS, for this amazing opportunity to connect with a broader group of folks around the world tonight. Thank you so much, everyone who's with us. Before we dive further in, I, I want to just I just want to acknowledge this evening that um, it's a privilege that we're able to sit here together that uh, Dr. Allison and I are able to be on Zoom, that we're able to um, have technology and, and homes to, to sit within and to connect with in order to be in contact this evening. And um, I, I just want to name that we're doing our best to be aware of our own privilege, our positionality, um, as we go into this conversation this evening, there are some areas in which we have our own uh, places of awareness and, and expertise. And then there's also uh, plenty of places where we don't know what we don't know. So we just want to acknowledge that right from the bat. And um, I'll turn it over to you, Dr. Allison. Thank you so much, Dr. Natalie, for that wonderful grounding meditation, especially appropriate because our conversation has to do with human health and our place on planet Earth and how we relate um, to Earth, where we find our support at all times. To preview where we're going to go tonight as we've planned this conversation, we're going to talk first about um, just basic background of the current coronavirus crisis, and we're going to highlight some unprecedented aspects of this pandemic that make it really a unique moment in human history. And a framing device we have for understanding the pandemic is that it's an unveiling, and I'll say a bit about that in a moment. Uh, So we'll talk about what does it unveil for us? What can it help us see that we couldn't see before? And then we'll consider where do we go from here? And that piece is really an invitation into a larger generative conversation that we hope can continue beyond this conversation. As we um, chatted with each other, we realized that this current pandemic situation opens up so many more questions than it answers. And so in that final part, we'll pose some of those questions that have occurred to us. I mentioned that the, um, the pandemic is an unveiling. And why do I say that? Well, many people have been talking about a sort of apocalyptic moment, um, like it's the end of the world or it's an apocalypse. And if we look at the derivation of that term apocalypse, it comes from the church Latin, meaning revelation, and from the Greek apocalyptin, meaning to uncover, disclose, or reveal, um, which is um, apo, that's off or away, and kaliptin, which is to cover or conceal. 
So apocalypse literally means to uncover or to reveal. And if we look back at that original meaning, it kind of give us, gives us some leverage for investigating what's going on at this moment. Other people have talked about the pandemic as a disaster. Uh, also, you know, a sort of cataclysmic event. And interestingly, that term too has a deeper meaning coming from um, the Latin again um, for star, astro, and then dis, um, not, or negative. So it's a disaster is living under a bad star. So if we're, if we're living under a bad star or if we're facing a moment of revelation, what might we find or what might we dig into at, that, at this time? And that's what Dr. Natalie and I want to discuss. Mm. Yeah. So I would like to just thank you, Dr. Allison, for that wonderful uh, framing here. And I would like to just toss out there that, you know, what we're looking at here essentially is um, what I consider to be a, a paradigmatic problem. Um, it's, it's a discord between the enchanted versus the disenchanted universe, if you will, the holistic paradigm versus the non-holistic or perhaps even the allopathic in the uh, medical lingo, so to speak. And I really believe that it's this paradigmatic discord that has gotten us into this mess and really perpetuates it. And in the holistic paradigm, we take a look at the whole and we understand that the whole is not just the sum of its parts. It's actually an integrated, interconnected, vibrant living system that emerges out of all of the component parts and that when we reduce things down, um, we don't necessarily get representation of the whole. And the reductionist, materialist, um, essentially postmodern scientific paradigm is one that um, I think has really contributed to the problems that we're seeing right now. And another way to take this paradigm in into account is to take a look at the human body as a microcosmic reflection of the macrocosmic earth, the planetary organism that we, we refer to as Gaia. And so COVID-19, coronavirus, is but one representation of a human manifestation of an illness that's happening on a much larger level, on the planetary level. Um, and essentially, when we look at what's happening with COVID and we look at what's happening with Gaia, we see that essentially everyone is in an inflammatory state, the human beings, the planet. And this, is, this pandemic is really a symptom of climate change, systemic illnesses that are deeper. Um, I wanted to just make note of a few really interesting things that came on my radar in the past um, couple weeks. Uh, first is something called Sentinel, which is an early warning system that was uh, designed to detect and, and track the next pandemic. It was introduced at, in a TED Talk in January of 2020. Uh, there's an interesting follow-up to that in April. Um, Bill Gates, back in 2015 on TED, gave a talk entitled, We Are Not Ready for the Next Epidemic, and also demonstrated a model based on the 1980, 1918 Spanish flu that predicted that the next pandemic would uh, potentially um, result in over 33 million deaths. 
And interestingly enough, there was something called Event 201 on October 18th, 2019, where uh, members from the Gates Foundation, Johns Hopkins University, and the World Economic Forum had what they called the pandemic exercise to illustrate our level of preparedness. Um, so there has been, at least on some level in the consciousness, a mindfulness towards the possibility of this pandemic happening. And since we have planned this discussion, which was supposed to be really oriented around human health and ecological resilience, um, the world has erupted in a way that we couldn't perceive. And there is ongoing painful revelation around systemic illnesses, including racism, the extent of police brutality we're seeing here in the United States. And we just want to say that we're aware that racism is also a global pandemic, as is sexism and classism and ableism. And again, we're, we're doing our best to focus on our areas of expertise tonight and acknowledge that we have blind spots. With that said, I do want to acknowledge also that we are on the eve of Juneteenth, um, which is the oldest nationally celebrated commemoration of the ending of slavery in the United States. And the further I dive into these rabbit holes, the more my heart breaks as I learn about the details of um, people suffering around the globe. So I'll turn it back over to you, Dr. Allison, for some background on the pandemic. Thank you. Thanks, Dr. Natalie. So that we begin this conversation on the same page, we wanted to just um, discuss a little bit on the background of the pandemic. So the novel coronavirus has never before been seen in humans. That's why it's novel. Um, and viruses are quintessential parasites. They're non-living entities that have to hijack living cells in order to reproduce. And of course, as, as you know, in the news, um, the, the formal name is SARS-CoV-2. Uh, the disease caused by the coronavirus is COVID-19, short for uh, corona, C-O-V-I, virus, and D for disease, 19, because it began in 2019. The first reports of this new unknown pneumonia were coming out of uh, China in late December 2019. And of course, by now it's spread around the globe. There hasn't been a pandemic of this reach since the 1918 global influenza pandemic. Uh, if we look at a few other pandemics, um, we might think of HIV, but of course, coronavirus that is um, transmitted through aerosols and droplets spreads much easier than HIV. HIV has killed 32 million people since the early 1980s. Um, but these days, people uh, can live with HIV. Um, in comparison, the 1918 flu pandemic killed 675,000 people in the U.S. Um, and approximately 50 million worldwide. Hopefully, we don't get to that level. Um, at this point, though, we're, we've seen already 400 and 50,000 global deaths from COVID-19. Um, and there are uh, more than 8.4 million cases of COVID-19 around the world. In the U.S., there are around 118,000 um, deaths already in the past few months and um, around 2.17 million cases of uh, COVID-19 in the U.S. as of today. Um, so obviously a very serious challenge uh, to humanity and really emphasizes our connection with the natural world. Um, it it uh, 
brings into greater awareness, and this is one of the ways it unveils or reveals um, the connection between human and non-human animals. So the current understanding of coronavirus is that it's a zoonotic disease that most likely jumped from bats, possibly to an intermediate host, maybe pangolins, and then to humans. And this really emphasizes the influence of the non-human world on human society. As Dr. Natalie mentioned at the beginning, um, there have been many predictions that there would be an epidemic outbreak of some type, and ecologists have really predicted that it would be a zoonotic disease. Um, as humans live in closer proximity to wildlife, um, and as humans draw on uh, bushmeat for protein, human and non-human life become much more intertwined. Um, in his 2012 book, Spillover, the science writer David Quammen described the terrifying um, effects of these various zoonotic diseases. At that time, um, Ebola was known, but of course, uh, coronavir the novel coronavirus wasn't known at that time. Um, and as humans uh, clear more forests and fragment forests and live in closer proximity with wildlife, it's likely that we will continue to experience these outbreaks of zoonotic disease that jump from humans, from non-humans to humans. Uh, so this really drives home the interconnection of, of human well-being and ecological well-being. Um, and as we think about this uh, appearance of a novel virus, I wonder, Dr. Natalie, what are the implications of experiencing a novel virus for the human immune system? Yeah, so one of the big considerations is just that it's novel and we don't have any, essentially any treatments in the dominant medical paradigms um, arsenal, so to speak. Uh, so as it stands right now, we don't have any quote unquote treatment or prophylaxis um, in the dominant medical system uh, for COVID-19. And sadly, um, actually not that much has changed since we started becoming aware of uh, this pandemic as it was emerging. Um, I was reviewing some notes that I sent out to friends back, uh, timestamped March 13th, where you know, recommendations were to wash your hands and you know, uh, cover your mouth if you sneeze. And um, that was pretty much what we more or less still have. Um, so we have essentially a situation where we have inadequate testing, we have inadequate treatment um, that leaves us very vulnerable and susceptible. Um, but again, that is pri primarily in what we call the, the dominant medical system, the allopathic medical system. And from the holistic paradigm, there's a lot that we can do because we organize our thoughts in the holistic and vitalistic paradigm around supporting the innate intelligence of the organism to heal itself. And so in the case of the human body, as a naturopathic doctor, I would look to see what might I be able to do to help this person reduce their stress in their life and boost their immune system and find more meaning and joy in their life, just as an example. And we have this concept uh, that the, it's the milieu, not the microbe meaning that it's the environment. It's not the bug itself. It's not the staph infection. It's what is the context? What is the environmental conditions that allowed uh, the virus to emerge in such a way that it has now become so problematic? What's so interesting about viruses, of course, is that they're not actually even alive. Um, 
they are produced on their own. They actually have to hijack the cellular machinery of another organism in order to replicate themselves. And another interesting piece about the SARS-CoV-2 virus that causes COVID-19 is its affinity to attach to the ACE2 receptors in the lungs. And I find this pretty significant because, um, you know, we're seeing that people who, who fall into more severe illness at the end stage um, drown in their own fluids, they drown in their own lung secretions. And in the, from the perspective of Chinese medicine, the lungs are the organ that house the emotion grief. And if you're not grieving at this point in time on the planet, then I, I don't know. I don't know what you're doing, but there's a lot to be grieving right now. And I'll turn that back to you, Dr. Allison. Well, that really, um, that point about grief is, is really fascinating to me um, because we're starting to have so much more awareness of ecological grief and climate anxiety among scientists who study environmental degradation and, and climate change and biodiversity loss, but even among um, regular folks who read the news or watch the news um, and learn about uh, the, the tremendous loss of biological diversity um, and the projections of um, warming climate. Um, and so raising this point about grief uh, makes me feel like there's a sort of a global, even before the pandemic, there was a global epidemic of grief. And of course, grief around racism and pre police brutality too, that is, has been long, very long standing, but perhaps not always recognized as much as it needs to be. So I would say that there, there was a huge epidemic of grief even before this current um, virus pandemic. It's, it's interesting to note that um, the virus uh, really takes up residence in the lungs and that is associated with, with grief in the traditional Chinese medicine system. And eco-psychologists are coining new terms um, to uh, to identify and name these these feelings of ecological grief, like psychoteric distress and environmental melancholia, um, the Australian philosopher Glenn Albrecht came up with the term solastalgia, which is the sort of grief that a person experiences when their home changes irre irrevocably around them, and we certainly see that um, with urbanization and destruction of forests and um, melting glaciers because of climate change. Um, so it's, it, the, the microcosm and the macrocosm are really uh, resonant here on this issue of grief. Uh, so we have this really unprecedented uh, pandemic. What, what are some of the particular aspects of this unprecedented uh, pandemic that you've noticed? Sure. Thank you. Well, first and foremost, that it is a pandemic at all, meaning that it has, you know, encompassed the globe and, and this disease process is showing up all over the planet. Um, I think it's also really important to note that uh, the, the disparities in health um, and access to health care and socioeconomic status are really um, being highlighted here. We have, we're seeing more deaths in low-income uh, populations as well as uh, people of color in indigenous communities such as the, the Diné Nation. Um, I've been tuning into the press conferences hosted by the World Health Organization. Um, and 
again, on this, this theme of, of societal injustice and racism, Dr. Michael Ryan, who's the executive director of the WHO Health Emergencies Program, said yesterday, it is entirely unacceptable that access to healthcare anywhere in the world would be influenced by race. It should be based on clinical need. Yet, that's just not the truth. That's the living reality for many people around the world. Um, and, and really, COVID-19 is essentially a drop in the bucket for many of these marginalized populations. Um, yesterday, on yesterday's WHO press conference, there was also a, a delegate from the uh, Neglected Tropical Disease Division. This is um, diseases around the world that don't get a lot of attention, um, such as leprosy. And uh, the delegate from that um, aspect of, of the WHO was saying, you know, it, the people with leprosy, are, they're not worried about COVID. I mean, they've got bigger fish to fry, essentially. And um, there was also open acknowledgement by the WHO that racism is a pandemic. And uh, Dr. Tedros, who's the director general, uh, described COVID as a very dangerous virus that's moving fast and killing, you know, at a rapid pace. And, and he really posited that the answer is unity and solidarity. And I really appreciate that he's putting that out there and calling for that across the world, unity and solidarity and humanity at a time that we've, like we've never seen. And now, you know, we have the technology, we have the means we don't all have the technology, but we, 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 have the inf we have some infrastructure in place. I hope we can use it. Um, Dr. Maria, the tech lead, um, also highlighted the, the reality that all countries need to be prepared to be the next epicenter. There were a lot of questions about what's happening in Brazil as the numbers are increasing there. Um, and also that uh, when we're thinking about designating epicenters, we need to be thinking about the prevalence of, a of the disease in the area. Can people do the things needed to mitigate and reduce exposure and transmission? Like, can people actually maintain distance or wear masks? What is the capacity in the local area to detect and trace and treat? We need to really be investigating and seeing that this isn't impossible in certain communities, especially, for example, on a reservation in northern Arizona and, and northern New Mexico. Um, these are a group of people that are used to living in community in a way that um, where social isolation is just not even really an option. Um, and also, uh, there were many questions about air travel, of course. Dr. Michael Ryan responded to that, saying that there's more risk in a plane, of course, than in the airport itself, but that we also really need to be thinking about establishing tracking systems for travelers. And that, of course, brings up questions around civil liberties. Um, if people are going to be tracked everywhere that they move, um, what does that mean? Um, he also noted that uh, surfaces, uh, people talk, ask about surface transmission. He said, you know, it's really hard to consistently disinfect every single surface as much as it might need to be. And then the question about temperature screening, you know, not all cases of COVID present with a fever. So um, is screening someone before they come into a restaurant or a hair salon adequate? Who knows? There's really, again, more questions and answers. Uh, the last thing that the WHO commented on that I thought was really interesting was, will there be a second lockdown, if you will? And Michael, Dr. Michael Ryan said that um, it's really important to think about our surveillance measures. The less sensitive our surveillance measures are, the more blunt our intervention measures are. Essentially, we can't see where to focus in the dark. So um, on one hand, again, we need more surveillance and tracking and tracing, but we also want to be mindful of civil, civil liberties. Um, you know, this, this non-living particle, this, um, here in the United States, we're seeing um, the national uh, unemployment rate of almost 15%. We've got schools shutting down, shifting to online education, travel disruption, mass migration across India on foot. Lots and lots more we could say about that. But um, essentially, the, the pandemic is allowing us to see certain aspects more readily. And uh, Dr. Allison, please uh, take us into that place. 
Right. So we we were talking a lot about what what can be unveiled. Um, what what are we seeing through this pandemic? And we note that uncertainty is one of the dynamics being unveiled in the modern paradigm where we're used to being able to um, fly in a plane here or there, get our information readily. At this point, we can't get information. As Dr. Natalie was just explaining, there's still so many unknowns about the nature of the coronavirus, um, uh, how it's transmitted and uh, what the severity is and how it's treated. Um, so this is bringing us into a, a time of greater uncertainty and unpredictability, which is really in parallel with um, what has been uh, predicted about climate change as well, that um, climate instability will lead to greater unpredictability as far as weather regimes, as far as what to predict for agricultural planting, for example, um, or um, severity of storms. And so in tandem, these two uh, pandemics of climate change and um, COVID-19 are shifting us, revealing this phase, this new phase of uncertainty and unpredictability. And they're also revealing our deep, deep dependence on nature. We um, talked about how zoonotic diseases arise um, from uh, human friction with non-human nature. Um, we're also noting that um, the confluence of environmental toxicity is giving rise to um, potentially uh, a greater suffering from COVID-19, especially because um, air pollution, which also damages the lungs, um, can uh, uh, increase the, potentially increase the severity of a COVID-19 illness. Um, we've, uh, this has unveiled for us the, the difficulty with industrialized meat in an industrialized society. We've seen uh, really rapid spread of COVID-19 among meat workers um, who may be, um, well, they're considered essential workers, but they may or may not have good access to health care. Um, so many animals have had to be slaughtered um, because of uh, inability to process them with uh, meat workers out sick. Uh, we know that um, cattle production cr creates a huge amount of methane, uh, which leads to uh, climate change. We know that land use conversion in the Amazon um, also contributes to climate change. So we really see this imbrication of uh, COVID and climate change around um, meat issues. Um, and we also see this sort of narrative of disposability arising where different groups of people have been um, sort of uh, targeted as disposable, um, essential workers without their necessary protective gear, um, older people when early rhetoric around, well, it's only older people who are gonna get sick, like somehow that's okay. Um, so an amazing quote that summarizes this dynamic of disposability with, um, came from Hop Hopkins writing in Sierra Magazine this week. And he said, you can't have climate change without sacrifice zones. You can't have sacrifice zones without disposable people. And you can't have disposable people without racism. And I think that we've really, again, had an unveiling of 
racism and police brutality over the past month or so, um, bringing so much greater awareness to the American public um, about what a serious pandemic racism is in the U.S. Um, so these are some of the unveilings we've seen. Certainly, there have been um, disparate impacts of COVID-19 on different racial and ethnic communities. Uh, do you want to talk more about that, Dr. Natalie? Yeah, sure. Thank you. Um, and again, I just want to acknowledge that, you know, what we might be referring to at times as an unveiling of a a pandemic of racism is also not new news to many people. That Many people are living that reality every single day. Um, and so some of the c- concerns I have about what's, what's being brought forth is, is really this fear conditioning on one hand. Um, you know, we're now being taught to have fear of hugs, fear of planes, fear of others. You know, this, this process of xenophobia just continues to, um, to expand, you know, be fearful of that group of people or that country or they're the ones that did this thing not a helpful helpful aspect to what's happening in my opinion uh there are racially disparate impacts of covid um tied into largely the socioeconomic uh system again we have environmental racism we're seeing disparate impacts in low-income people of color indigenous communities um we know that structural racism shapes the access that people have to things like clean air and water and safe neighborhoods and school and fresh food. All of these aspects are important for supporting well-being and longevity. And the lack of these, alongside an increased exposure to toxic stress, contributes to conditions like heart disease and diabetes, two conditions that are um, asthma as well, three conditions that are known to worsen the course of COVID-19 illness um, and our wonderful um, Shmi Jiratana said today in a conversation earlier, if your life already feels threatened every day by your existence, then how does the threat of COVID land? So again, just just trying to get outside of our boxes of uh, privilege and and positionality and consider what it's like for other people who are threatened by their very existence, perhaps. Air and water, um, we have some data um, from the American Journal of Public Health here that uh, is talking about people in poverty having um, almost one and a half... uh, times exposure to particulate matter and error than the overall population, uh, people of color also in that range, um, and African-Americans having a 54% higher chance of being exposed to particulate emissions, which again, aggravates asthma and heart disease. And an interesting, another interesting pack, uh, part of that is that um, Blacks and Latinos are noted to breathe in more air pollution than what they breathe, than what they pollute, produce, excuse me, whereas whites breathe in 17% less than what they actually produce. And we have um, countless statistics coming out of Chicago, Milwaukee County, the state of Louisiana, showing that um, black people are representing 60 to 70% of deaths from COVID, although they're only making up about a third of the, of the city or the region's population. Um, same thing in New York City, Latinx people are dying Um, with more than double the rate compared to white people. We still have questions out there about places like Flint, Michigan. Is the water actually safe to drink there? Who really knows? Same thing in Brooklyn, Um, many school systems around the nation. Again, we're seeing the Diné Nation in um, northern Arizona, northern New Mexico being really hardly hit. They have the highest infection rate per capita. 44% of the people on the reservation are living below the poverty line. A third of them are without electricity and running water and Mining operations are using local water to slurry coal downstream and people can't use the water that's on the land. I mean, it's just, it's really sick. Um, And then we have, of course, 
all sorts of challenges with um, incarcerated people and refugees in crowded spaces where it's not possible to maintain proper hygiene and social distancing. Whew. Okay. Oh. I know it's intense. Um, just to take a, a, another deeper look here at what's happening with um, healthcare as it relates to COVID. Um, some of the good news is that 80% of the cases are mild. Um, but of course, you don't want to be one of those people that's in that 20 percentile. Um, common symptoms include fever, fatigue, dry cough, uh, potentially a disorder in smell or taste, sometimes GI distress. Again, we have to think about things like access to care and testing and treatment. Um, the testing is not 100% at this point. I mean, there is no test that is 100%, but when we're thinking about a, a validated test or the possibility of a test being validated, we want to think about how sensitive it is and how specific it is. Is it sensitive enough to detect, to detect what we're looking for? Is it specific enough to detect that compared to anything else that might be in the sample? So we don't, at this point, have tons of FDA-validated tests. Um, so the testing is kind of a big question about false negatives and false positives. Um, we have the WHO... Uh, the Solidarity Clinical Trial, where they're looking at four different drugs um, in terms of treating COVID patients. Um, many of these drugs come with wonderful side effects such as liver toxicity and psychosis um, and heart and pancre pancreas toxicity, suicidal depression. Um, as of Monday, the FDA in the United States pulled, uh, actually urged revoked its emergency use decision for the drug hydroxychloroquine, which is um, commonly used for the treatment or prophylaxis of malaria. And um, also the WHO decided to pull that out of their solidarity trial because they decided there's just not enough evidence. Um, they say it's unlikely to be effective and there are serious side effects, such as psychosis. Um, and then also alongside this challenge where people stockpiled this drug initially, states and, and countries stockpiled this drug, making it less available to patients who rely on it like people who have lupus. So there are all sorts of layers of problems here. Um, the latest drugs you have some uh, news around it is a steroid called dexamethasone. And um, preliminary data from the UK recovery trial uh, just released a few days ago um, has shown that patients who are on oxygen, um, so these are really severe COVID patients, patients who are on oxygen had a reduction in their mortality by about one-fifth. Those who are ventilated had a reduction in their mortality by about one-third. So we're really talking, you know, 20 to 30 percent of those severe cases um, had some improvement with this, uh, this, this steroid drug. Um, it's not being recommended for prophylaxis or for mild cases, but um, contrary to uh, what we might think about it being perhaps a miracle, um, steroids are actually known to be associated with viral replication. So these are, again, really end-stage patients that are getting this treatment, but um, it's not something that people should be doing uh, on the regular. And then the last two points here, just, you know, we have these huge questions coming up around essential versus non-essential care. Uh, so many people have had their quote-unquote non-essential health care um, pushed to the side uh, on one hand to reduce the potential of exposure in a healthcare facility, but also to divert the uh, resources in the healthcare system to the COVID patient. But who's to determine what's essential, right? If you have a mole that you feel like needs to be checked out or you think that your heart's about to explode, that might be, seem really essential to you. And then we have, of course, a shift uh, towards telehealth and telemedicine uh, versus in-person care, and that brings up more questions about access accessibility. Does everybody have the opportunity to be on the phone or a computer to check in with their doctor? Um, again, endless rabbit holes we could go down here. And so 
um, as we're looking further into this exploration about what's essential and not non-essential, I'm curious, uh, Dr. Allison, if you'd like to comment a bit about how this relates to the environment, the labor force, um, some other aspects here. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, thank you for that summary. Certainly, the access to, um, as you were saying, telecommunications is even that is um, there. There's disparate access, right? And um, and some of our lowest paid workers, um, in for example, um, stores and and food delivery services and so on, have been deemed essential workers. So we're out there uh, potentially at risk of of um, illness um, without good benefits, without necessarily good access to healthcare, or n without uh, paid days off for illness. Uh, so this definitely brings to mind uh, the need to uh, reform uh, our healthcare system. Um, of course, farm workers are absolutely foundationally essential for all of us to eat, and yet often lack health insurance, lack um, uh, paid days off, may lack safety gear. Um, and we talked about meat factory workers earlier. Um, and when we think about human dependence on intact ecosystems, um, the, the pandemic really brings our awareness to that. It also brings our awareness to the way that uh, nature can rebound when humans retreat a bit. And we have seen in various places a bit of rewilding as, uh, as humans are sheltering in place. We're not out um, everywhere these days. So I, probably in social media or in news articles, you've seen some of these stories about mountain lions uh, strolling through Boulder, Colorado, or wild boars racing through Barcelona, or bears and bobcats having fun in Yosemite Valley because there aren't so many campers there. Um, so um, we can see that nature can heal when, when humans retreat a bit. Um, and that also reminds us of the healing power of nature itself. So um, as we are, are sheltering in place, one of, the, um, one of the few treats that we have, many of us, is daily walks. We're allowed to leave our house to, for exercise or for walking. And we know that being in nature has many benefits, um, physiological benefits for, for people as, as well as psychological benefits. Um, the practice of forest bathing in Japan has become, uh, was very popular even, even before this, but has revealed that um, people who participate in forest bathing have lower blood, blood pressure and um, lower heart rate, uh, their cortisol goes down. And so this is one of these practices that we can um, safely, probably safely engage in even during the pandemic shutdown. Um, engaging with nature, and then perhaps uh, improving our own resilience um, in, in the face of COVID-19. So we definitely see a lot of these connections. Of course, we've seen a decrease in uh, carbon emissions over the last several months, and this is a, a hopeful sign um, in regard to climate change, but it, it's also probably temporary. So one question I want to raise is, are there 
changes that we've experienced over the last several months that we might want to institute over the longer term to help us reach some of our climate change goals to limit warming to uh, 1.5 degrees Celsius. But it, that does require a major um, shift in business as usual. And so I think we can really see um, the COVID pandemic as an example of climate change. Our first real challenge of climate change um, where the human um, uh, imbrication with the planet becomes, becomes unveiled, becomes incredibly transparent to us. And the same dynamics that drive climate change, like overconsumption, greed, wastefulness, disregard for nature, are also driving the COVID pandemic. Um, so hopefully we can use this moment as a wake-up call and change our relations with, uh, with nature and ecosystems and Gaia as a whole so that we can avoid um, future catastrophes. So Dr. Natalie, there's a planetary perspective. And as we discussed at the beginning of this conversation, embedded in the English language is the idea that stars influence life, life on Earth. Uh, disaster is living under a bad star. Influenza comes from the medieval Latin influence based on the notion that epidemics were influenced by the stars. So if we were to zoom out and take even a broader view of this apocalypse, what might we see? Yes, well, as a, a graduate of the Philosophy, Cosmology, and Consciousness program and a standoff, I must uh, speak just a little bit to the exposition of these archetypal energies through the lens of, of astrology. And uh, we're currently coming to the end of a really potent transit where the outer planets, Pluto and Uranus, have been in a square uh, since 2007. And the last time that these planets were in hard aspect was during the 1960s. And we know that there were lots of different revolutionary energies um, in the 1960s, especially here in the United States, um, all sorts of different uh, movements that um, characterize the energy of these two planets, Uranus being the energy of liberation, creativity, innovation, sometimes explosive, unexpected events, and Pluto, um, a volcanic, deep, dark, creative, but also shadowy aspects of the universe uh, type of archetypal energy. And so um, specifically in the past 14 years, we've been in this hard aspect of Uranus-Pluto in a square and bringing up lots of different issues. And in the past couple of months, we've entered into um, even more, uh, more influence from other planets, including Jupiter and Mars and um, Saturn, where we've seen even more of an eruption of these energies and the breakdown of structures. Societal structures are breaking down. We're seeing this in the healthcare system. We're seeing this in the quote-unquote criminal justice system. We're seeing breakdown of structures everywhere. We're seeing new things being um, brought into the light, if you will. And so I, I offer that we, um, you know, essentially we have astrology as a map to look towards in the in the in the realm of potentiality so for those of you who are who are inclined i invite you to consider taking a look at the astrology of the moment and how and consider how we might be able to work with this especially as we come out of the uranus uh, pluto square um yeah and then cool. yeah we'll take a look here at um you know a little bit more of what's happening with unveiling and resilience Right. So it seems like um, astrology actually can be a tool for cultivating resilience because it can be a way of 
thinking paradigmatically, right, and putting the current moment into a larger context. But I'm sure in your naturopathic health practice, you have other practices of personal resilience. Do you want to talk about those? Sure. Yeah. So first, I just want to give a little voice to something called the window of tolerance. And this is, I think, a helpful conceptual tool for all of us. So um, within the window of tolerance is where we get stuff done, essentially. And when we're above our window of tolerance, we're in a state of, hype, of hyper arousal. We're anxious. We're maybe manic. We're frantic. We, it's hard to focus. And yet when we're in a state of hypo arousal, uh, we might be depressed, lethargic. And so um, whenever we're trying to get stuff done or process anything in life, it's ideal to stay within this window of tolerance. And this is a concept from um, psychology. And resilience is defined by the American Psychological Association as the process of adapting well in the face of adversity, trauma, tragedy, threats, or significant sources of stress. It not only helps you to get through difficult circumstances, but empowers you to grow and improve your life along the way. Um, resilience uh, is, is demonstrated in human beings um, all across the planet, as well as in the ecological systems. Um, I find that it's really helpful to tune into myself and just kind of check in where am I, what, to take inventory on the various aspects of my being, my mental, emotional, physical, social, sexual, spiritual well-being, um, to take some inventory and really sit with myself. I personally have a, a daily meditation practice. I'm really um, into smoothies and superfoods. Um, nutrition for me is a really uh, deep practice of, of um of resilience. Um, and I think that as we look to society and the ways that we, we're going to need to have some practices in place to recover from this time, we're going to really need to prioritize relationships with other people and perhaps in new ways and build connections and find ways to foster wellness and find purpose, especially in these times if, if you know, the staying at home, sheltering in place goes on for longer for some of us. Um, you know, we might need to seek some professional help as needed as well. How about for you, Dr. Allison? What are some things that help you? Yeah, for me, I've been really leaning into my yoga practice, and I'm so grateful that my teachers are offering courses online. And that's actually one of the gifts of this time is that it's possible to take a course with a teacher, you know, anywhere, not just the local Berkeley teachers. Um, I think that uh, meditation and sinking into the present moment where we can realize that we are um, in if we're fortunate in this moment, we are safe and um, hopefully we're healthy and, and recognize that we have that at this moment. Um, a lot of teachers are talking about gratitude as well um, to the extent that we um, have safe housing, uh, have a full fridge, um, if we have a job. These are all uh, in, incredible things to be grateful for in this moment. Um, and, you know, Joanna Macy's work, the work that reconnects, is, um, is really helpful, too, in um, moving from this um, into this open-hearted space um, to, uh, to build resilience and to, to recognize the strengths and the foundations that we have and then look into the, the change that we desire, um, the great turning that we desire for a more sustainable world. But it's interesting to hear these ideas about um, human resilience because they, they really remind me also of ecological resilience, which is defined as the amount of disturbance an ecosystem can withstand without changing into a new system. Um, and some of the factors that contribute to resilient ecosystems are diversity, biological diversity, redundancy, 
um, functional redundancy within systems, connectivity between systems and within systems, um, slow variables and feedback loops within systems so that change can be moderated, um, learning within systems. And when I think about what you've shared around um, resilience and human health uh, in the face of COVID, I really see a lot of parallels with ecological resilience and ways that we might weave these factors of ecological resilience into our human systems as far as diversity, redundancy, recognizing feedback loops. Um, so maybe that's another aspect that might be able to be carried forward, um, perhaps after this pandemic, uh, when we get to that time. Are there other um, teachings from your naturopathic practice that you would want to share? Yeah, I'd like to offer a few um, kind of consensus recommendations from the naturopathic perspective. But before I do that, I'd like to just highlight a little bit of um, resilience research from Lucy Hone. Um, I listened to a great uh, TED talk of hers recently where she said, adversity does not discriminate. And I think that's an important thing to, be, to keep in mind. And she defines three or describes three characteristics of resilient people. Um, one is the understanding that suffering is part of human existence. Uh, second, that um, resilient people are good at choosing where to put their attention and to distinguish between what they can and cannot change, as well as uh, they're good at asking themselves, is what I'm doing actually helping or harming me? So really pointing to the, the power of self-compassion. Um, so I, I'm, I'm a big proponent of self-compassion and, and compassion for all. Um, I also think it's really helpful to to look at and cultivate practices of contemplation and, and also um, expression. So for some people that might be meditation or quieting the mind or yoga. And for some people that might, an expressive practice look, might look like dance or drawing or writing or things like that. But again, I think it's important to just keep in mind that not everybody has the tools to learn how to cultivate those practices or has a full fridge or is, um, sees nature as a resource or sees nature as a place of refuge. Some people are actually fearful of nature. So I just wanted to name that. Um, so in addition to the things uh, that are being generally recommended by the medical system, such as washing your hands, wearing masks, uh, being mindful of social distancing, uh, from the naturopathic perspective, we're encouraging people to drink lots of water, ideally, ideally, ideally at least two liters a day for most adults. That's about 64 ounces um, to consider eating um, a primarily vegetarian diet of whole organic foods with lots of fresh veggies and fruits and specifically to reduce or avoid red meat, pork, dairy, and gluten because they're very pro-inflammatory to the system along with refined sugar, processed foods, caffeine, alcohol, and tobacco. All these things tend to inflame the system and we are inflamed as the people. Um, in, in terms of, uh, and before I say the rest of this, let me just say, um, I have to just acknowledge that I am not your doctor and therefore I am not diagnosing or treating you. <laughs> um, but I, I am happy to share these naturopathic uh, notions here. So supplements that can be helpful, uh, increasing one's intake of vitamin C, um, ideally about 1,000 milligrams three times a day. Uh, same thing with vitamin D, two to 5,000 I use a day, vitamin A, 25,000 I use a day. Um, zinc, the mineral zinc, 50 to 75 milligrams a day. These are all known to boost in helping the body to um, mitigate viruses. Um, N-acetylcysteine is a specific amino acid that's very mucolytic in the system, meaning it breaks up mucus. It also helps to uh, manage the parts of our immune system that create allergic reactions. And um, its, its acronym is NAC, N-acetylcysteine. Uh, 
it's advised to take between 500, millig- 500 and 1,000 milligrams three times a day. And then probiotics, the good bugs that live in our gut, at least 20 billion colony forming units a day with a blend of uh, lactobacillus and bifidobacter strains. There are several herbs that are known to be supportive to the immune system and overall health, such as elderberry, um, echinacea, um, other respiratory and lung herbs such as Osha, Elecampane, and Yerba Santa might be useful during this time, as well as mushrooms like turkey tail and reishi um, that have a long legacy of being um, essentially longevity tonics in Chinese medicine. The homeopathic remedy Bryonia has emerged as a potential support, and um, a really fun at-home treatment one can do is um, hydrotherapy in the shower. So ending your shower with hot and cold rinses, starting with hot and then ending with cold, ideally alternating three times, um, going a little bit warm and then going cold, starting hot, ending cold. That's a really easy way to help um, remind your system that it can, it can boost itself uh, to be a little more agile. And uh, yeah, I'll, I'll pause there. Thank you. Yeah, it's, it's great to have those resources um, to boost our immune systems at home. And so to, um, to conclude, we want to look back where we've been. We shared the background of COVID-19 and some intersections with climate change and ecological degradation. We looked at the unprecedented aspects. We looked at what's being revealed. How is this apocalypse a revelation or an unveiling? And then we discussed how we might develop human and ecological resilience in that context. And as we mentioned at the beginning, this conversation for us has raised more questions than answers. Um, And so we want to pose this as um, a, a sort of a generative discussion and think about, are there changes that have happened Um, or are happening during the COVID pandemic that might be changes we'd like to institute into society as a whole to create more sustainable societies, maybe like universal healthcare or universal basic income? Are there ethical changes that we might need, like um, um, a more communal Um, ethic that focuses on the collectivity rather than only my individual freedom to do whatever I want, whenever I want? Are there ways that we may um, need to moderate our freedom in a liberal society to recognize the well-being and the needs of others? Uh, In in the U.S., we've really focused on our own individual freedom, but it, it seems to be coming at some cost and certainly um, that that freedom has um, has contributed to racism, right? Um, if my, my certain person's freedom to do whatever um, then causes harm to to another person, um, so we might reconsider um, our our ethical formulations, our ethical foundations, our our notions of freedom. Um, we might better examine interconnectedness and how we are interconnected with not only other humans, but non-human nature, as well as these particles that aren't even living, these viruses that have now woven their way into our society and indeed disrupted the global economic system. 
um, in a in a really unprecedented way. And and who would have thought that a non living particle could um, bring the global economic system to a halt? So maybe we reconceptualize interconnection in certain ways. Um, these are some of the ideas that come to me, Dr. Natalie. Do you have other things that you're hoping we can, other questions that we want to leave with or other things we want to reconceptualize? Well, I, I just want to um, reemphasize that essentially we need an overhaul on all systems. Um, we, we're, you know, this, this, COVID-19 pandemic is really highlighting the fragility that's within the systems and um, the, the levels of oppression of various marginalized peoples, um, whether that's based on uh, gender or sexual expression or identity or um, ethnic background. There is just, there's just so many systemic problems. So I'm really just calling for an overhaul of um, systems, healthcare, politics, um, environmental care, um, just I just think that we need to continue to ask ourselves the, the really difficult questions that, you know, what can I do on my personal and my day to day that can be mindful of the whole and not to sacrifice, um, become martyr necessarily, but to just be mindful that everything that we do has an impact on everyone else, every other being on this planet. Um, and so I think we can, we can do things like, you know, put our, our prayers or our energy or our intentions towards the well-being of the whole at this point in time. I think that we can extend our energy into the noosphere, this concept that there's a, um, a, a mind or a heart or a soul of the earth, if you will. Um, we can put our energies out there. Um, and I also would like to uh, see more of these conversations happen, invite more um, interdisciplinary conversation and bring forth more underrepresented voices um, in the communities. I really think we need to think about how we are uh, decolonizing our minds, our hearts, our souls, and, and to think about the ecology of our mind, our heart, our soul, the environment, and beyond. Um, and to, to consider what we can do with our agency and with our quote-unquote free, free will, if that is indeed a thing that we have. Um, I think those, that's about where, what I've got in the moment. Sounds great. Thank you for such a stimulating interdisciplinary conversation. It's been really fascinating to think through these issues of human and ecological well-being with you. Yeah, you too. Thank you so much, Dr. Allison. Thank you for listening to the CIIS Public Programs Podcast. Our talks and conversations are presented live in San Francisco, California. Podcast production is supervised by Kirsten Van Cleef at CIIS Public Programs. Audio production is supervised by Lyle Barrere at Desired Effect. The CIIS Public Programs team includes Kyle DiMedio, Alex Elliott, Emlyn Guinea, Jason MacArthur, and Patty Fort. If you liked what you heard, please subscribe wherever you find podcasts. Visit our website, ciis.edu, and connect with us on social media at CIIS Pub Programs.